0: Let me invite you to open up to the uh, book of James. We're going to be in James this morning, James uh, chapter 4. And I, you know, I kind of had an opportunity to preach a couple of different things here before we uh, move into the book of Romans. If you don't know, beginning in the new year, you know, we finished Acts, so we'll be heading to Romans. And we're real excited about doing that together as a church body. And then I wanted to, to let you guys know that Lisa and I are heading out of town this Wednesday night and going to Singapore so we'll be able to serve in a conference, a couple of conferences uh, going on, how to minister to caretakers of special needs families. it will be a couple of days, and then I'll preach on a Sunday at Fisherman of Christ Church there in Singapore, and then I'll be serving at a family conference uh, for the next few days after that. And the joy is that uh, Michael and Jordan Sehusen will be also serving at the same conference, and so those are our missionaries in uh, Fiji, and uh, Michael and, uh, is Lisa's brother, so it's a real privilege for us to get to t- together, do a couple of conferences together in Singapore. So I'll be out next Sunday. You guys will be hearing from Mark Madrid, one of our elders here, faithful uh, elder, servant of our church. I think he's going to be uh, teaching from Ephesians chapter 2. That's what he's been thinking through and working through, so you guys will be blessed. We'll miss uh, being here with you you uh, next Sunday, but please pray for us as we travel, that we would be able to be a great uh, light and a witness, and it's a great opportunity to be there. So I've been kind of thinking about this passage for a little bit because um, I recently read through James, and Lisa and I enjoy reading through the MacArthur study plan at and James during the Thanksgiving holiday, and I was really just thinking and meditating on what it means to draw near to God. And so this message is kind of out of uh, just my personal devotion. I just decided to tackle verses 1 through 12. And the title of the sermon is The Danger of Living Without God. And the antidote to that is obviously drawing near to God, which I think is the key verse to this passage, which is in verse 8. So we're going to tackle it together, and hopefully you'll be blessed and encouraged. We'll be taking communion at the end of our service. But let me read to you verses 1 through 12 from James chapter 4. do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. One of one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Father, we're grateful this morning to read such a powerful passage, uh, earlier James 3, and now the first part of James 4, and what, what uh, encouragement, what challenge, what opportunity for us to lean in and to listen carefully as we desire to draw near to God. We know that the biggest obstacle of drawing near to God is our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, our own concerns that sometimes have more to do with temporal things than eternal things, and it fleshes itself out in fighting and quarreling and all kinds of conflict that can arise. And so I pray that this morning you would encourage us and allow us through this passage to see the beauty of Christ and that we would walk in obedience to him and in incredible fellowship and encouragement with one another, be glorified in our time together. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well have you ever heard this poem about self-centeredness? I call it The Tea Party. I gave a little tea party this afternoon at 3. Twas very small, 3 guests in all, I myself and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches, while I drank all the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. How sad. Who wants to go to a tea party like that, right? Where this person is so focused on having tea with themselves. I mean, I don't know about you, but talk about self-centeredness. That's what's going on. And this kind of reminds me as well, being self-centered, of the woman who said, at a dinner party, my husband and I have managed to be happy together for 20 years. I guess this is because we're both in love with the same man. So that's the problem, right? Right. So, being focused on oneself usurps the biblical commands to love and to care for our neighbors. And every act of love is rebellion against the scripture, self love. Every act of self love is rebellion against the scripture. Self centeredness is rooted in one's fleshly desire to please self more than God. In essence, it is the act of supplanting God's glory with one's own ego. Essentially, this is living your life without God. And it is true that looking out for our own interests just feels natural. In fact, Jesus uses this natural innate self-interest as a basis for gauging our love for others. Jesus said in Mark 12:31 that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we understand that, in other words, this is the same way that we naturally love ourselves ought to be how we love our neighbors. And therefore, for those of us in Christ, we should be focusing on God and focusing on others. The way that we ought to do that is by drawing near to him and understanding that as we draw near to God, it makes us want to serve other people This is precisely what Paul's referring to in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, that we're to have the mind of Christ in us, and part of that is doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others, and their interest is more important than your own. And so this kind of command leaves no room for self-centeredness. The biggest problem, again, from us drawing near to God is we're self-centered. A British actor, Michael Wilding, was once asked if actors had any traits which set them apart from other human beings. Without a doubt, he replied, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves." So he's obviously saying that actors can sometimes be so consumed and focused on themselves and their own accomplishments and their own interests that they have no desire to talk about anything else. Hopefully that's not true of you this morning, right? Self-centeredness can be defined as an immoderate concern with one's own interests and well-being, self-love, or egotism. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8, verse 8, that people who are self-centered are not able to please God. Self centeredness is a sin because it leads to being devoted to self worship while at the same time ignoring God's interests and the interests of others. Self centeredness is drawing close to self, not drawing close to God. I read an article this week about uh, how to be miserable. In fact, the title of the article was How to Be Miserable, and here's what it said. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism, trust nobody but yourself, insist on consideration and respect, demand agreement with your own views, own everything, sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown to them. Never forget a service that you have rendered, shirk your duties if you can, do as little as possible for others. What do you think? Is that appropriate? If you do all those things, I guarantee you, you'll be miserable. You might think you're serving yourself, but we know too well that living for yourself just makes you more miserable. And this kind of self-centeredness and self-love is totally antithetical to the teachings of Scripture. I mean, the Bible couldn't be more clear in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, that love is patient and love is kind. And it's not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Love keeps no record of wrongs, right? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And the danger of living without God is that it will put you on a path of self-worship, self-love, and self-centeredness. And in a world that already does this all too well, as Christians, we ought to be demonstrating what it looks like to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, in short, we need to be drawing near to God. And so this morning, I want us to examine four headings from James chapter 4, 1 through 12, that will teach us how to get back to the delight of drawing near to God. These four truths are going to be, number one, self-centered living destroys relationships. Number two, self-centered living displeases God. Number three, self-centered living demands repentance. And then number four, self-centered living denies God as the true judge. Let's start with number one this morning. Self-centered living destroys Relationships. Look at your first blank there if you are taking notes. What is the cause of your argument? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, the theme of the epistle. Of James, I think you know this, it's faith without works is dead. And faith without works can't be considered to be a true saving faith. Faith without works of obedience to God is indeed dead. And a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. This is the whole theme of the epistle of James. Faith must be at work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith is not Enough, and intellectual faith is not sufficient. Faith must be put into action. Now, throughout this epistle of James, we, we, we're, we're looking at how James is addressing Jewish people. There are some believers, some unbelievers, and James is trying to make sure that he's explaining what faith looks like in everyday life and our practical experience by emphasizing that faith works itself out in every area of our life. And throughout the book of James, we could talk about how faith endures trials, and faith obeys God's word, and faith produces doers, and faith harbors no prejudice. It controls the tongue. Faith acts wisely. It provides power to resist the devil, and faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Now here in James 4, the concern is that some of the Christians are living without faith, which means, in a sense, they're living without God in their everyday lives. And the good news is is that Jesus will expose some of our self-centeredness while at the same time showing us how to get back to where we ought to be in our walk with God. And so the first thing that we're seeing here in verses 1 through 3 is that self-centered living destroys relationships. In chapter 3, we read earlier about how James warned of the danger of the tongue. And that only the wisdom from above can help us be full of mercy and good fruits. And so if we sow in peace, we'll reap in peace. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes we're not using the wisdom from above and the tongue gets the best of us. And that's why he continues in chapter four, verse one, asking this question, where do fights and quarrels come from? Why do we get into arguments in the first place? And the temptation is to think, well, the problem is always the other person. I mean, you remember at my tea party, I can serve myself cake and eat the pie. I'm a a great person. I enjoy myself. But when you put another person in that sphere, put another person in your life, and you begin to have an argument and you fight and quarrel, we're tempted to think that it's going to be because of the other person. This almost always happens in counseling. Any conflict in counseling and you have two people come in, they're gonna try to justify why they're right and the other person is wrong, and they're gonna try to justify why they're right and the other person is wrong, right? That's just human nature. We don't think it's us, it's someone else. But the end of verse one says that fights and quarrels come from where? It says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions here is where we get the word hedonism from. It refers to desire or pleasure. You you think you'll be happy as long as you get what you want. And what do you want in that moment when you're in an argument? Well, you want to be heard, and you want to be validated, and you want the other person to agree with you that your idea is actually the best idea How can they not see that my thoughts and my approach to this particular situation is far superior to the other person's thoughts on the same situation? And so you begin to argue with one another because you're arguing for the fact that your way is best. Your approach to a given situation has got to be the best possible approach to the situation. Well, what is that? that's selfishness. You're wanting everybody in the world and in that moment, the other person to agree with you because your passions are at war within your own heart. And so you'll sometimes lose that battle because it's okay to want to be right, but you just can't demand it, right? We want to be, you know, heard, but you can't demand it. And when you move into that, then you're moving into idolatry where you're beginning to worship yourself because you're exalting your thoughts and your everything over everybody else. In fact, let me give you just two quick tests. This isn't in the notes, all right? Two quick tests on how do you know if that desire to be right is idolatry? You ready? Number one, two two tests, how do I know if that's idolatry to want my way to be the right way? Number one, do I have to sin to get it? Do I have to sin in order to get it? In other words, am I being demanding? Am I being manipulative? Am I being, you know, Rude and ugly about demanding that I be heard and represented the way I want to be. So I do. I have to send to get it. The second test that you know for a fact if that's an idol or in your heart or not is: Do I send if I don't get it? So do I send in order to get what I want? The result of that conversation, or do I send if I don't get what I want? So maybe you walk away upset, or you give the silent treatment, or you withhold. You know, congenial interaction for the rest of the day or the rest of the week because you didn't get what you wanted, so you're pouting about it. Either way, if you're being overly aggressive or overly passive, that shows that that was an idol in your heart because you didn't get what you wanted in the conversation, and so the result, your next blank, what's the result of the argument? Well, according to the end of verse 2 there, or the middle, it says, you desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The result of the quarrel, the fight, ends up in murder. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, I I don't think most fights end up in murder. And I'm not saying that James is necessarily saying every bad fight ends up in murder. But I think he's trying to make the point that Jesus had made earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you shall not murder. But then he goes on to say, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to the same judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying that anger in your heart is murder. And you will be held accountable for that. And you may not literally kill someone, but the anger and the jealousy and the cruelty which we generate in our own hearts is the same thing as murdering the other person in our own hearts. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, And the first one is, guess what? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. It comes out of our hearts. And so back to, to James 4 2, it says as well here, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is making it clear that the passions and the desires within your own heart have passed beyond the reasonable biblical desires, and they have now moved into that category of covetousness, which is a sign again of idolatry. Your desire has now become an idol in your own heart. You believe that you have to make your point, that you have to demand to be heard, that you, that you have to be you know, justified, and then, and then you even justify yourself in sinfully lashing out against the other person. And these are all clear signs that you are coveting, and therefore you are sinning, and the problem is you. It's not the other person. Remember, James is saying, What causes quarrels? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And that's what we've got to see this morning. You've got to be able to see your problem first. And you've got to be willing to, to see your problem, in a sense, as worse. And then you should be willing to work on your problem the most. That's how you work on resolving conflict. What have I done wrong? And how grievous that must be in the sight of God. And what can I do to grow and change? Do you see your problem first? You need to work on your problem uh, the most. And do you see your problem is worse? And then we move on to verse 2. Your next blank here at the end of verse 2. What is the solution to your argument? The very end of verse 2 says, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so you're not asking for the right thing. You're only asking for what you want and not necessarily for what God wants. And you're so self-centered that you're not asking for what would honor God and serve the other person. You're asking out of your own selfish motives. 1 John 5.14 says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But in this case, according to James 2, the end of the verse in verse 3, we're not asking according to his will. We're asking out of selfish motives. We're so caught up in the moment that we're asking with sinful, selfish, it's all about me type of motives. And in that, God is not going to answer that kind of prayer. I mean, in this context, James is essentially saying, stop asking for more things and start asking God rather to give you a more God-honoring relationship with the other person. I mean, how can you just start asking for things? It's almost interesting how that's just kind of put in there as if, if, if you're, not, you're in an argument, but you're also selfish that you're asking for selfish things and not asking for God to be glorified in the situation that you're in. And so we're, we're looking here again about how self-centered living is destroying relationships. Let's move on to number two. Self-centered living also displeases God. It displeases God. Your next blank. God's kindness is better than the world's friendship. Verse four, you adulterous people. Do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And so here, James condemns in verses 1 through 3, fights and quarrels. He condemns covetousness. He condemns asking for something to spend it on your passions. In fact, this is how you, when, when we're living like this, James now says in verse 4, if you're living like verses 1 through 3, then you're being adulterous. You're, you're an adulterous people. You're loving the world more than you're loving God. So now you're at enmity with God. We understand 1 John 2.15 says that we're not to love the world nor the things in the world. In fact, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that we, we are learning to love God more than we love the world, right? John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, I would rather have the world hate me than have God be opposed to me, I would rather be disowned by the world than to be disowned by my Creator. I would rather ignore the world's temptation than to disregard God's plan for my life, which is far better than the world's. Hebrews. 11:24 through26 reminds us of this, that, that we don't want to be friends with the world. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the, re- the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward so that's a great example, isn't it, of it's, more, it's way more worth it to be friends with God by following him and pursuing him than friends with the world. Look at your next blank. God's desire for us is stronger than our flesh. God's desire for us is stronger than our flesh. Or do you suppose, verse 5, that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this particular verse, verse 5, is one of the most difficult verses to interpret or understand correctly in the epistle, and part of the reason is that James seems to be quoting from the Old Testament, and yet those exact words are nowhere found in one verse in the Old Testament. And so most likely, James was giving these words to be more of a general teaching of the Old Testament. As if, it's as if James is asking, do you think that the Scriptures are in vain And we know the answer to that question would be, of course not. The scriptures are never in vain. Instead, we should listen carefully to what uh, what the scripture says. And so some say that James may have been thinking of Exodus 34, 14, which says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So part of what may be going on here in verse 5 is that James is saying, look, you belong to God. He's jealous for you. He's put his spirit inside of you. You now belong to him. It's the idea here that God yearns over us with a righteous jealousy for our entire devotion to be for Christ. In other words, God will not share you with the world. We're not to be an adulterous people One foot in the church and one foot in the world. We have been given a new heart when God saved us. And that new heart, now the spirit of God dwells inside of us. That's the beauty of the uh, characteristic of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And so as believers in Christ, his spirit now lives in us and he wants all of us we are, we are his, we're, we're his creation, we're his workmanship, we're his possession, we're his people, we're his church, we're part of his body. Just as 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, right? You've been bought with a price. And so we're seeing here that God is jealous for us. And then in verse six, the next blank God's grace is given freely to the humble. So he wraps up this section, one through six, by saying, you know what, it's, it could be tough. It can be difficult to work through fights and quarrels and, and, to, and to not be selfish or adulterous, spiritually speaking, of being distracted. And, and, uh, and so in verse six, he gives a little bit of hope here where he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the only ray of hope that we have out of our predicament, out of our own depravity, out of our spiritually darkened, selfish, self-centered hearts is the grace of God. God gives more grace. This means that God gives greater grace. This word more here in verse 6, it literally means greater. It means to exceed A standard. It means to be above average. It means to be greater in intensity. All that to say that God's grace is greater than your sin. No matter what you're going through, in the heat of the moment, in the difficulty of being in a fight or an argument or being self centered or selfish, we're reminded that God gives grace in that very moment and it's greater than our sin. You don't have to keep going down that path of a sinful response or a sinful pursuit because God gives grace. But he does not give grace to the proud. He does not give grace to the haughty. He does not give grace to those who demand it or to those who think they deserve it. He gives grace not to the proud, but to the humble. And James is quoting here from Proverbs 3, verse 34, but to the humble he gives favor. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5, when he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are those that are of low status, those who are lowly, undistinguished, of no account. Grace is given to those who are unpretentious, those who are unassuming, those who are unimposing the word humble is not meant to define a a special class of christians but rather it refers to all believers god is looking to give grace to those who know they're in great need your only way out of your selfishness is the grace of god isaiah 66 verse 2 but to this one is the one on whom i will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word so God's not looking for righteous people. He's not looking for kings or princesses, right? He's looking for those who are humble and contrite in spirit. That means they're repenting in their spirit and they tremble at God's word. And so based on these verses, I hope that you are interested this morning in crushing pride and cultivating humility. I hope that your desire is to kill self-esteem and to build God esteem. I trust that you're ready to abandon all arrogance and to adore and worship Christ with all that you are because without Christ, you are nothing. And without Christ, you have nothing. And without Christ, you gain nothing. And so we're looking at this fact that self-centered living destroys relationships. Self-centered living displeases God. And now number three, self-centered living demands repentance. And in verses seven through 10, James rattles off 10 imperatives of what we need to do about it. And I'm going to give it to you in six segments. So number one, A, submit to God. James is saying, hey, look, God gives grace, and we're going to work through this. And if you humble yourself, he's going to exalt you. But here's what you need to be doing. You need to, chapter 4, verse 7, you need to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. To submit means to line up under It means to be subordinated to. It means to render obedience. And this word was used of soldiers who would line up under the superior officer. No questions asked, right? A soldier is called to obey the orders of the commander. And in a similar way, we're called to have that same attitude in our orientation to God. We submit to God. We come up under God and his word and we're to submit to him in every area of our lives and we're to place ourselves under God's care and under God's counsel and under God's command. He's the superior officer and we have to submit to him in every way. The verb is used frequently in the New Testament, this idea of submission and submitting to God. Luke uses it, the word submit, to describe how Jesus submitted to his parents when he was a boy. Paul used it in other places to indicate a Christian's responsibility to submit to the government and how a wife should submit to her husband and how a slave should submit to his master. And so if we are a Christian this morning, that we've got to learn to submit to the lordship of Christ in our lives. There's something about the world that doesn't like this word, submit, you know particularly in marriage it kind of bristles on the back of the neck when you're like oh i got to submit to my husband or a kids like i got to submit to my mom and dad nobody likes submission anymore but it's a beautiful word it's a great reminder of the humility of submitting to a great creator and to a great savior it ought to be a joy for us to submit right it's a privilege for us to submit to our our creator our lawgiver and our judge it is a joy to submit to our sovereign to our ruler and to our king it is a joy to submit to God who has our best interest our best way forward and our best life in mind and it's a life of service unto him not about gathering lots of things. It's about loving God, loving others, and that needs to be demonstrated in submission. And so as we submit to God, we're also to, look at the next blank, we're to resist the devil. There in verse 7, it's just loaded, right? Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So part of Part of what we're doing is we're receiving more grace, Is we're submitting to God, we're resisting the devil. Submit to God, resist the devil. That's, that's your Christian life. Submit to God, resist the devil. And resist can be translated as to stand against, to oppose. It's the idea that there's no middle ground here. You, you submit to God and you resist the devil. It's that movement in your own life that you realize I used to serve the devil. I used to follow the prince of the power of the air. James 2 talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins and, and, and we were stuck in that place. And yet God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And so we have a new king. We, we have a new sovereign. We, we submit to God. We, we no longer submit to the devil or follow the devil in our depravity Right? We have a new allegiance. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so let me ask you this morning: has that really happened in your heart? Has your allegiance been transferred from Satan to God? And if so, then you will resist Satan in every area of your life. As Peter says, 1 Peter 5:8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Next verse, what does it say? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, what the, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So here's a, a second passage that we see in Peter, same thing. Resist him, resist the devil. The devil is like a roaring lion, so we we have we have uh, to respect that right but the good news is is that the lion of Judah is greater than the lion of this world Satan seeks to devour but Christ delivers us from his prowls and so we can resist the devil by being firm in our faith when we're rooted and grounded in God's word and when we look to God to do exactly what God calls us to do, then we, we don't have to give any opportunity to the devil. We're, we're soldiers in the Lord's army. We fight with the weapons that are of spiritual warfare that he provides for us. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6.11 says, that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, we're not a Charismatic church, right? We, we're a cessationist church that so we don't often talk about. You're in combat with the devil. But it's exactly what God's word says here in James 4, 7, 1 Peter that we just discussed, chapter 5, verse 8, Ephesians chapter 6. We do do hand-to-hand combat with the devil. And we're called to resist him. That so we can't just, just, just not pay attention to the importance of what these verses are saying. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Doesn't say he might flee or he'll still linger around. I mean, we know that the battle is every day, but the, the promise here is that if we do this the way God ordains, directs, uh, calls us to do, he will flee from us. And then the heart of the whole passage, why I wanted to preach this message, is verse 8, where it says, Your next blank, draw near to God. This is the heart of the passage. Draw near to God. That, that's how you get away from self centeredness, that's how you get away from the devil. The problem really is that's going on is we're not drawing near to God. So we're commanded here, draw near to God. It means to pursue an intimate relationship with God. That's what God calls us to do. It's, It's what Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 7 and following, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I might count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So it's just a reminder that everything this world has to happen is rubbish. It's all trash. It's refuse compared to the refuge that God provides in knowing and loving him. God wants us, he's inviting us, he commands us in this verse to draw near to him. Certainly we wanna do that with a sincere heart and not just out of obligation, like Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13, when he warned the Pharisees about how these people come near to me with their lips, and they, uh, and they I mean, they, they honor me with their lips, but their heart was where? Far, far from him. So when we say draw near to God, we're not saying come to church, do Christian things, be a part of a WANA youth group and a small group, and that's drawing near to God. It may be a way to draw near to God, but you could do all those things and be just as far away from God as anybody else who's living out in the world. So we're, we're inviting you, we're being commanded in this verse, draw near to God. It's not just lip service to our faith. We actually want to be near God. We, we want to be in his presence. We, we want to, to read his word. Nobody's got to ask you in your small group, how's your time in the word going? That, that's not, I mean, we should and can not ask those questions, but it's like, wh- what do you mean? I, I'm in communion with God every day. I love to be in God's word. This would be the evidence of true saving faith is that we linger and we long to be in the presence of God. We want to read his word. We want to draw near to him. We want to see his face. We want to pursue God with everything we have. This is where God's calling us. The way to fight self-centeredness is draw near to God. I mean, consider the psalmist in Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 73, 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. It is always good to be near to God, right? I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell you of all of his works. This is uh, Hebrews four, sixteen. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let me ask you this morning, are you drawing near to God? Are you loving him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? Are you thirsting for him like you would in a dry and weary land? Are you desperate to be in God's presence or are you overly casual and taking for granted that your soul's been saved by more grace do you long to be with jesus if so are you meeting with him in prayer are you eager to do bible study are you meditating on the word of god day and night and if not then that's on you if you're not doing those things then that's on you because here is a command and an invitation that, that we would lean into him. And I, I just love how, you know, in some places in the Bible, it's like he loved us first and that's why we love him. And I believe that. But I also like other places like this, he says, well, you draw near to me, God is saying, and I'll draw near to you. And so in this context, he's saying, hey, come to me. You know, I, I envision this as, a, as, you know, when you go up to give somebody a hug and it's like maybe you don't know them that well, or maybe uh, you've had some conflict and you're trying to re embrace. And so when you come, you're just kind of sheepishly coming with just a little bit of a hug. And then the other person, when they sense your hug and your desire to lean into that, that, that hug, they just kind of wrap their arms around you and they just kind of pull you in and let you know it's okay. And that's kind of how I envision it with God. He's like, we, 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 we draw near to Him. We're kind of tiptoeing in. We're still a little apprehensive. We know that we're not. As we should be, but we're commanded to come, and, and as we just kind of lean in a little bit, he just grabs us like this. Draw near to him, and he says, "I will draw near to you." And he pulls us right in. this is why one of my favorite verses of the Bible. It's a promise that God gives that He will draw near to you. He doesn't say like, "Get off of me. Don't hug me. I don't want you around me, not after what you did, not what after you said. No. You draw near to him. He draws near to us, and he pulls us into him today. We just need to lean in. Maybe you just need to ask God today to help give you the courage to do what he commands, to draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Maybe you just need to lean in until that desire is awakened. Maybe you need to make this the main priority of your day, and everything else in your life will work itself out in time. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then in verse 8, we read, Be cleansed and purified. So it's right in the middle to draw near, but we do need to also cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so the, the origin of this idea was in the Jewish ceremonial prescription for the priest as they came before the Lord. They were actually supposed to wash their hands as they would approach God. Moses talks about that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 18 through 21, and it talks about, you shall make a basin of bronze and it shall uh, stand, it with its stand of bronze for washing, you shall put it between you and the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with, with, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister or burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. So, some of this language of drawing near is both the priest drawing near to the holy place, and then it's also the cleansing here is wash your hands and lots of ceremonial responsibilities. And this would signify the idea of washing your hands refers to an outer cleansing. It's an outer cleansing from sin by physically removing yourself. But it's not only the cleansing by washing your hands, notice verse 9 there, or verse 8 rather, says to purify your hearts. So there's an outer cleansing and there's an inner cleansing. There's a focus on outwardly removing the sinful pursuit and sinful uh, stuff that our hands are dirty with, so to speak, and there's the idea of leaning in and then purifying our hearts by confessing our sin, 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so both of these expressions of both being cleansed and purified were clearly communicating to the Jews that they needed to repent that they needed to repent outwardly and they needed to repent inwardly. They, they were struggling with this double-mindedness. And James talks about that a couple of times and, and he's calling them out, don't, don't be double-minded. In other words, you can't have it both ways. It's like what Elijah said to, to Israel in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And that's really the crossroads of our life. How long are you going to keep going back and forth? If you're going for God, then you resist the devil. You'd be cleansed outwardly and to be purified inwardly. And that's exactly what needs to happen in our own hearts. And so how are you doing in your walk with Christ this morning? Have, have your hands been cleansed? Has your heart been purified by the precious blood of Christ? Have, have you been made new by his spotless sacrifice? Are you walking in faith and obedience? Because if you are, the next blank there says, then you'll, you'll learn what it means to mourn over your sin. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. To be wretched there in the ESV, it means to be afflicted and to be miserable. This is the state of those who are truly broken over their sin. And God will not turn away from a broken heart and a contrite spirit, right? Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen to me this morning. Mourning is a part of the Christian life. And there's no time when it's more appropriate to mourn than when you are in sin. Now, we can mourn over catastrophes, and we can mourn over disease, and we can mourn over death, but there's no place in Scripture it's most appropriate to mourn than over our own sins. Part of why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we're we're called here in this verse to, to be wretched, to be miserable, to mourn, and to weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. The Christian life isn't all about rejoicing. It's also about mourning. We can mourn and grieve over our sin, and and I'm not saying we should stay in that place forever, right? But it's part of the process of putting off sinful practices and being renewed in the spirit of our minds and then putting on holy habits. And if someone's trying to put off and be renewed and put on with no mourning and with no miserableness, of like when you sin, it just gets you in the gut to where you're like, I cannot believe I've done that again. I am so sick and tired of responding that way. Why do I keep struggling with anger and selfishness and the lust that I, that I struggle with? Well, God's t- walking through it with us that we need to make sure we're being wretched and we're mourning and we're weeping, that we're truly broken. And this leads to your next blank, that we're humbling ourselves. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The word humble comes from a word meaning to make oneself low. This does not mean that you're half-heartedly performing self-put-downs that people sometimes use in order to induce others to build them up again. Rather, this is a genuine realization of our complete unworthiness and defilement because of our own sin. And as penitent sinners, we ought to feel a sense of unworthiness That's expressed by Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5, when he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There Isaiah is like, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm not worthy to stand in the presence of the kingdom. The more we see the holiness of God, the more we see the weightiness of our own sin. And Jesus said in Matthew 23:12, "Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." And so God's calling us to this place of humility. And when we're in that place of humility, that's when we see greater grace from verse six. Those who come into the presence of the Lord in repentance and humility, he will exalt lavishly. And that leads us to number four, self-centered living denies God as the true judge. And I won't take the time to go into much detail, but do not speak evil against another. Your next blank after that, well, well, he, 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 he's saying here, let me go to the next blank, okay? Uh, do not speak evil against the law, so don't speak evil against others, Don't speak evil against God's law. And then C, do not acknowledge God, or excuse me, do acknowledge God as the one lawgiver and judge. That's what these verses are about, right? Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So in this, in these last couple of verses, again, don't speak evil against your neighbor. And I just came up with three questions I thought would be helpful to ask because I know we're still supposed to confront others when they're in sin. So there's a difference between confronting someone in sin and then judging their hearts or their motives, or somehow being the ultimate judge that now they're doomed because God gives grace. So we need to, to be careful how we approach that. And so as we're trying to, to carefully you know, work through how do, we, how do we hold each other accountable without judging one another, I gave you three questions. What good does it do for others when I am in a process of confrontation, being careful not to judge? What good does it do for others? What good does it do for yourself? And what good does it do for God's glory? In other words, we're coming in very carefully into that place. And so we don't wanna speak evil, against God's law. So if we, if we do try to rationalize ourselves in that moment, then what we're doing is speaking against God's law as if God's law is no longer the authority in our life. And that's why it says at the end, there's only one lawgiver, There's only one judge, and that's the Lord God. And so we need to make sure that we're submitting to him. And so I hope that you've seen this morning the danger of living your life without God, living a life of self-centeredness is a disaster. It it destroys relationships. It displeases God. It certainly demands our repentance. And self-centered living denies God as the true judge. And so let me just ask you again, if you've been living a self-centered life, as I have been, then there's hope for you. Right here, right now, you can repent. You can humble yourself before God. You can be wretched and mourn and weep. You can let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And as you do this, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. He will save you. He will sanctify you and he'll satisfy you. And so draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't let your life be all about yourself, but let your life be about loving God and serving others. For this is where you'll find your true joy and if you don't know Christ this morning, none of this works, right? This is, this is for Christians. This, these, these commands and these encouragements are what it means to be truly saved by grace. So if you're here this morning after we close with our final song, we'll have a few people standing right over here. We would love to talk with you about how you could receive this greater grace through the gospel of God sending his son to perfectly fulfill his law and die in our place as a substitute that we could be born again. And if we're doing that, then some of the take home of, a, of, the, of the message this morning, do you realize that you are in an argument, that when you are in an argument, it is a sign of self-centeredness? How many of you think you might get into an argument this week? Come on. Oh, good. There you go. And the rest of you are, are in bad shape. Okay. If you, if you get in an argument this week, first thing to do is like, you know what? The problem's me. It's not Adam speaking, that's the word of God speaking. There's something going on in my heart that's not right. The problem's me. So how can I approach this challenging conversation in a way that honors God? Number two, being self-centered reveals that you're being friends with the world. Instead, we need to be submitting to God, resisting the devil, and drawing close to God. What does that look like for you This week. And then speaking evil of others demonstrates that we're self centered. If so, how can you be a doer of God's word and let God be the judge? Remember, faith works. Faith works in all areas of our life, certainly in how we fight and resist the devil and how we draw near to God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to to look at this passage and to be encouraged with a whole litany of uh, commands, 10 of them in verses 7 through 10 about mainly resisting the devil, submitting to God, and drawing near to God. And I pray that you would help us to do that in a way that would honor Christ and that would honor the majesty of, of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, that we could have new life. And so, God, wherever this sermon hits us this morning, I pray that it would, um, that it would work itself through our hearts and reap much fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.